Hi, this is Jacob, and this is episode five of The Health Question. The root of the word question is quest. And so today's questions relate to the quest of our guest, Dr. Mark Berger, who has spent the better part of three decades to understand and explore how to use a type of data called real-world data to improve healthcare. More on real-world data after a brief review of Mark's distinguished bio. Mark is a physician, a graduate of the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He has worked with real-world data for more than 25 years and is a national expert. In fact, he serves as the chair of the Real World Evidence Advisory Board for Shift Analytics, which was acquired by Medidata for $195 million last summer. Throughout his career, he led data initiatives at the world's largest healthcare companies, including Pfizer, Optum Insight, Eli Lilly and Company, and Merkin Company, and continues to participate in initiatives to inform best practices for the use of real world data by regulatory agencies and other decision makers. He has served as faculty at both the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and the Health Policy School at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Mark's full and considerable bio is detailed in our show notes. We're glad to welcome him to the program for a discussion on how to use data to build what the Institute of Medicine has described as a learning health system. Mark, I'd like to begin by asking you, you've commented that you've been engaged with real world data for over 25 years. How did it start for you? Was this of interest since medical school? Well, thanks for having me, but actually no. Um, in medical school, um, my uh, aspirations was to be a basic scientist and looking at basic mechanisms of disease and pathogenesis. And I initially uh, did that for several years um, and was doing that in academia, but I left academia in 1988 and went to Merck where I did um, clinical research, phase two and phase three clinical trials for several years. And then um, there was a whole lot of discussion around the rise of managed care and healthcare reform and how do we know that the healthcare system was actually delivering good value for all the money we're spending on it. And there was the um, arising of a new field called outcomes research. And I said, I don't know quite what that is, but that's really where I want to be. And uh, I moved into that field, and I've been there ever since. And um, while the field um, is one that um, uh, does do data collection, just like a randomized trial, we do do specific data collection, um, a lot of it was focused on how do we use the voluminous data that's being thrown off by the healthcare system to better understand what's happening, uh, who benefits, who doesn't benefit, and how do we make that system um, more efficient and more effective. And so that actually ties, I think, very nicely into this concept of a learning health system. What, what is the, how long has that term been around and what do people mean by it? So the learning health system came out of the Institute of Medicine, which is now the National Academy of Sciences and um, which really at the turn of this century. Um, what the ideal would be is that there needs to be a merging together or at least a convergence of two separate activities. One activity is delivering good healthcare and the other is research into how to make healthcare better and more effective. And that has, those two activities have been very separate 
And a learning healthcare system allows you to do the two of them together. So in delivering care, can you do research that effectively allows you to understand what works and for whom and how to make outcomes better for patients and deliver it at the best cost? Um, that's the goal and the ideal. Um, and it will take a while for us to realize that. But particularly as we move from uh, an era where a lot of medical records were handwritten on paper to all medical data being digitized, um, it became possible to envision a time when all this data could be um, collected, curated, analyzed, and used in a rigorous way to, uh, on a continuous basis, try and continue to um, improve how we deliver care. So as you made a mention about how, as care is uh, delivered today, it throws off a lot of data. And I've heard uh, there's, there's a taxonomy of how to think about the data that's generated electronically. One term that's used is real world data. Another is real world evidence. Uh, it, it, it seems that the data that's thrown off as sort of a regular matter of course is properly categorized as the former as real world data, but then real world evidence is, is sort of a subset of the real world data or how, how should real world evidence be defined? So yes, real world data um, is been defined by a number of uh, sources as the data that's routinely collected during the course of delivery of care. Um, that actually, that definition has expanded. Uh, and some people would say it's any data that's collected out of standardized, standard randomized controlled clinical trials, because it's not just the data that you're collecting in a healthcare system, which include data in your medical claims and in your electronic health record, but it also can include other kinds of data like your genomic data, um, or it can look, uh, include socioeconomic data um, and other kinds of data. Even that, weather data. or Weather data, which has been used to uh, help understand patterns of disease and seeking of treatment. So the definition has expanded. Um, the data that is thrown off by the system or, any, or for any source is raw data. Um, before you can call that evidence, you have to take that data and curate it and make sure it is as clean and accurate as possible. Um, and then you have to rigorously analyze it to draw inferences from it. And when you draw inferences that you feel confident in, you can call that real world evidence. Part of the controversy around real-world data and real-world evidence is that because the data has been collected for other purposes and is already existing, um, can one make the same level of strength of inference around causality? Does a particular action cause another thing, or are you just looking at correlations? And this is something that has been um, of major concern, particularly to regulators in terms of expanding the use of real-world evidence for effectiveness decisions. On the other hand, we've been using real-world evidence for many years to understand changes in the safety profile of treatments that are out there, so that we use that kind of data 
when we uh, find out that unexpected adverse events occur in much greater frequency when you take a certain treatment, and then we warn people about that, and we make that uh, you know that kind of information available to the medical uh, community. Um, the concern is that on the effectiveness side, we want to even be clearer about that because um, um, we want to make sure that if we are stating something is robust enough to be used in decision making, we are not just picking up uh, random associations. So when I was reviewing um, the learning health system, kind of how you know that you've arrived, you know, and, and you have it, there were a list, and I'm sure that it could, it could continue on, but uh, of, of several different characteristics. I'm just going to read um, a couple. One of them is uh, being able to use uh, real-world data, big data, to understand the epidemiology of disease and unmet medical need. A second would be to inform the development of precision medicines. Uh, a third would be to inform healthcare benefit design. Uh, another would be uh, to assess the incidence and prevalence of adverse events associated with marketing medications to inform regulatory labeling, which I think you just sort of spoke of. Um, another would be informing regulatory labeling decisions regarding indications, dosing, benefits, and subpopulations, et cetera, which sounds like it might have a higher uh, bar. So as I read these e examples, is it appropriate to think of a learning health system as not sort of a binary, either you have it or you don't, but almost a, a step function that you can uh, have a, like a, a level one learning health system, a level two learning health system, et cetera? Well, it's a, it's a shift in the mindset. Um, science has, generally speaking, considered the acquisition of knowledge to be done in specific chunks. You do an experiment, you do a study, and that study gives you some information which you can then um, use to think about whatever you're trying to do. Um, and and, and, and so that's where we have the current, the original drug development system. You have phase one trials, phase two trials, phase three trials, phase one. You put it in man and you want to make sure that uh, you're doing, escalating the doses carefully because you don't want anybody to get hurt. Um, you want to make sure that there is some um, margin of safety. In phase two trials, you know, you're trying to look at, can you show some biologic effect or some hint that it might be effective in the disease that you're wanting to. And then in the phase three trials, there are big enough studies, and usually regulators require more than one, the big enough studies where you have a hypothesis saying, I'm going to try and look at whether um, this drug provides a particular benefit. And, um, and you do that with a certain level of confidence in, uh, uh, in statistically. Um, that kind of chunking of uh, learning is different than um, what W. Edward Demings would have called total quality management and which we have talked about within health as continuous quality improvement, whereby um, you're continuously monitoring data that's coming out and you're essentially 
trying to look at a control chart over time saying, am I getting to less variation and better outcomes and more efficient use of it? And can we continuously use that data? That's a very different paradigm. And embedded within the concept of a learning health system would be eventually getting to a place where um, you didn't have to um, arbitrarily say, today I'm starting a study and I'm going to look at, look, see what I can learn over a period of time. You would say, I have now embedded within the process of delivery of care the ability to conduct experiments um, in order for me to determine um, what's the best way to improve healthcare. Mm -hmm. So it's really moving to more continuous learning rather than a discrete set of, of episodes of learning. So we had spoken about how many of the applications today uh, have referred to medication safety. Has there been a higher tolerance to be able to apply some of this data towards areas where um, we're preventing loss, we're preventing harm, rather than uh, applying it towards areas where we might be able to improve health or, or you know, have new gains? Is, is there sort of a, a comfort in going in one direction rather than the other? I, I think that the victim among healthcare providers is first of all, do no harm. So um, if we think there's a possibility of harm, we're willing to accept um, less robust evidence and make decisions based upon less robust evidence. Not that it's not good evidence, but it's, it, you know, it, it, it's not proven to the 99.999999 you know, level of certainty, but there's really good confidence that it's happening. Um, on the other hand, um, if you're going to expose people to a treatment and no treatment is, is risk-free, if you're gonna say, I think you should be using this for someone, you wanna have a greater level of certainty that the risk-benefit profile is worthy of the problem you're trying to treat. And, and so that's why the randomized controlled clinical trial became the gold standard in the 20th century for um, uh, understanding whether drugs can benefit patients. And that's what they answered. Can they benefit patients? It doesn't answer the question, do, does it actually benefit patients, but can it benefit patients? And you can answer that with um, more certainty and impute more causality strongly when you do a standalone study which has nobody has gotten the treatment, I'm randomizing patients to different treatment assignments, and I'm then looking over time what happens, and I can then attribute to what they got assigned to what happened to them. Um, there's no doubt that the randomized controlled trial was the single greatest methodological development of the 20th century. It got us to a place where um, we can start thinking about evidence-based therapy as opposed to, well, in my experience, I've used it in a bunch of patients and I think that this, this stuff works. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking right now, what are some examples that come to mind of um, applications of real world evidence that have expanded the use of care 
that, uh, that we could be familiar with from just the last couple of years? Well, I, you know, I think that we have many more good stories on where we have now um, been able to much more rapidly detect the adverse consequences of drugs. And, 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 and so let's just back up a point. Um, back when I started in outcomes research, um, it used to take nine months to a year and a half to do a study, um, or maybe longer. If I'm, you know, if you're doing prospective data collection, you know, it's as long as you're doing the follow-up. But even then, the data sets were not as good. Uh, the data quality was not as good. Getting access to the data and analyzing it, there were very few people who had the um, skills in data analysis to manipulate the data and do the curation and then doing the analyses. And it was, it was a big process. Um, today, doing that stuff can be done in hours to days to weeks because the data sets have gotten so much better. The data quality is so much better. Not that it's perfect. The data still has problems and there's sparseness in data, missing data, whatnot. But the data's gotten so much better and our understanding of about the methods about how to line, analyze the data have gotten so much clearer and the technology to analyze the data have become available that you don't need to be able to be a programmer to analyze the data. You can drag and drop and actually do sophisticated um, analytics. So we now have the ability to do things much faster. And so in that regard, um, the recognition that that was available um, led several years ago for the FDA to create the Mini Sentinel, which then became the Sentinel Project, in which we are now, as an ongoing thing, monitoring the signals that are coming out of um, products once they get on the market. And we, instead of waiting several years, you can probably detect once a certain amount of experience has happened, you're likely going to you know, find um, um, adverse events faster and more quickly, thereby uh, preventing um, harm happening to patients um, in, a, in, in, in a much more um, efficient way. And so that's been a, 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 real, a real success. The other part of, um, uh, of, real, of real world data that has really made uh, uh, an impact has been less around um, the effectiveness of particular therapies, but um, understanding um, how we can predict better which patients may respond to certain therapies and which who will not. And we've recognized that there's a tremendous heterogeneity in the treatment response. And so, when we were developing our blockbuster drugs in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you know, uh, they were effective, but they were effective probably in two thirds to three quarters of patients, which meant that a quarter of patients probably didn't respond. Well, that's not ideal. Can you come up with understanding about that heterogeneity better? And so with better data and better analytic techniques, we're now better able to develop better predictive models 
to help us target therapies. Also, we also understand that the delivery of care is not uniform either. You know, um, some systems of care have been more effective in delivering care um, in a way that gets better outcomes. And so um, healthcare systems and payers have been analyzing data saying, if I have a certain set of patients who need this kind of intensive, expensive care, can I look at all of the care centers that I'm working with and say, which ones are getting better outcomes and which ones are not getting better outcomes? And this was actually even earlier um, 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 led to the creation of a enthusiasm for care quality of care measures, saying, can we measure the quality of care that's being delivered so that we can provide information to patients so that they can make better choices about where they're going or not? All kinds of issues with that as well. But the idea is that um, not every um, the care delivery endpoint, whether it's a doctor or an office or a healthcare system or a hospital, they don't get all the same results. Mm -hmm. And part of that may be because the populations they're treating are different, but also it's because some individual centers may be really good because they focused on that at delivering care. So some of the major cancer centers in this country um, get better outcomes than the uh, other places in the country when you, when, when you, you know, when you look at it, compare about it, and you adjust it for severity of illness, they get better outcomes. We, we know that uh, surgical interventions, um, some surgeons, you know, who have done thousands of cases and are very good at it, they get better outcomes than someone who's just starting out or who, who only sees a couple, three cases a year, and so they're not as practiced at that. We expect that kind of variation, and we can, we, can, we can understand that, and we can use that in multiple ways in terms of um, um, both study design and in ways of improving the overall quality of everyone to meet a certain standard. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. So what I'm trying to think about is that if I'm, if I'm a financial executive at a large pharmaceutical company, for example, and I'm thinking about whether to invest in uh, techniques or tools or teams that will be using real-world data or real-world evidence, I, I think that I get excited if I think, well, now maybe I'll be able to determine if, if there's a new indication that one of my approved drugs uh, would qualify for, or if now I can enter into the orphan drug space in a way that I couldn't, or now I can do things uh, with um, precision therapeutics that I, that I couldn't before. Uh, is there a, first of all, am I thinking about it in the right way that that's where um, some of the, the financial return on investment would come from as well as the associated, you know, benefits to the patients uh, or are there other areas that are, that are key? So, um, Pharmaceutical companies have been using this kind of information to inform um, their investment decisions for years. So 
Are you going to go into a disease which has many thousands of patients or very few patients? Are you going to target a disease which um, is costing the healthcare system billions of dollars, or one that you know is is not is not is not one of the major cost drivers of, of care? And so um, they've used that information, but they haven't been able to systematically use it. Um, as well as they are able to now, because now instead of relying on published research in the epidemiology literature, many of the diseases they're going after, there really isn't good published data on. And you now can go directly into data sets and actually get some insights that will enable you to form your, 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 your um, investment decisions. Additionally, um, um, a lot of clinical trial design has been traditionally informed by clinical expertise. You know, you're doing a cardiology study, you ask cardiologists, okay, so what are the endpoints I should be measuring? You know, how, how long do I need to follow them? Blah, blah, blah. Um, now you actually can go in and look at what's happening with real patients and you can actually begin to model what is the trajectory of a disease. And you can ask questions around, um, is there heterogeneity in the population? Uh, do different parts of the population uh, react differently or have a different disease course? And you can even begin to use that data to simulate your clinical trial before you even conduct it. And so that ability to be able to better get input into the design of how you make a trade-off between the sensitivity of what you're going to be able to detect and the generalizability of the population you're going to look at and make better choices around inclusion exclusion criteria that will lead to differences in terms of how long it takes you to recruit using this data to find where those patients are, all of which can make the clinical trial effort more effective. And Drug companies would like to be able to have less late stage failures. They lose a lot of money when late phase three studies don't work out. And if, or if they are investing in a product, um, they'd rather kill it early than, than keep on um, banging their head against the wall and getting tantalizing uh, information that isn't um, um, really going to get them across the finish line. And here, real-world data can be, can be very useful. And then the last part is, it used to be that the pharmaceutical companies knew way more about their products, both the benefits and harms, and who it was being used in, than anybody else. That's not true anymore. Um, these data are being collected by healthcare systems, by payers, by registries, and so they no longer have a monopoly on what people can learn about the um, profile of products once they're on the market, what is their safety and effectiveness. And so a lot of different stakeholders now are analyzing that data. So they better have be analyzing that data too to understand as soon as possible what are the changes in the profile that are being revealed 
so that they can best recommend um, how to best use their products um, and understand from a competitive standpoint why other choices might be, you know, other therapeutic choices might be equally good or better or not as good. So one of the uh, points that you made, this ability to sort of simulate in advance of a clinical trial, what is a reasonable expectation of how that clinical trial will result? Um, I have read that one of the one of the difficulties with clinical trials is finding a sufficient number of patients to fill the trial, determine where to best locate the sites uh, for the trial, um, and sometimes also not to sort of overmine the same patients for each uh, set of trial. I think my understanding is that there's a uh, cohort of patients and maybe they live around an academic medical center that conducts a lot of trials and they wind up having a higher propensity of participating in a lot of these trials because it's sort of the well that everybody is going towards. Um, are these problems, uh, first uh, first of all, I mean, are, to your understanding, and, and if they are, do you expect that in the next three to five years that they may be significantly reduced? Well, there are two problems. One is, is finding the patients. And the second problem is uh, the pool of patients that you're competing for, many different companies may want to enroll in clinical trials. And as you talk about at academic medical centers, maybe the same patient gets enrolled in multiple clinical trials. Um, the issue of finding patients is becoming more and more of an issue. And that is, as we begin to develop more and more targeted medicines, targeted medicines are going after more smaller specific populations. How do you find them effectively? And um, there are data sets out there that um, will enable you to find out where patients are located and in which the data set owner who may be a large payer or a large system has permission to go back and contact the doctor and say, you know, we're running a trial, we're going to come participate in the trial. You know, you may have patients that, that, that are um, eligible and here's what they might look like. And so you can speed up clinical trials. And there are multiple cases where using that kind of information to find out where the, there are pockets of patients, um, you know, that probably meet the entry criteria for a study can speed up enrollment. Or doing an analysis shows that, guess what? You know, you have 20 inclusions criteria and 20 exclusion criteria, but in fact, only 15 of those inclusion criteria are important, and the other ones just make noise that make it hard to find patients. You can simplify your protocol, and that can speed up enrollment. So that, 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 that's happening. Um, um, the issue about finding patients who haven't been multiple users, that's a more difficult question, particularly when you get in towards orphan diseases where there aren't a whole lot of patients. Mm -hmm. um, and for orphan diseases, the issue is um, they're not, they may not be, there may not be diagnostic codes for this new diseases. And so how do you find them? How do you find these patients? And here, again, um, you can look at constellation of data elements, which may not definitively diagnose that this patient has this rare disease, 
but will enrich the population such that if you look at those patients, you're more likely to find patients with that rare disease and help you make the process of patient recruitment more efficient. So there are multiple ways to get there. Um, um, but remember, um, at the end of the day, we will not be able to do a randomized controlled clinical trial to answer every question we want to have an RCT answer the question for. And um, it would cost too much money. Um, and it may not be feasible to recruit patients into all of these studies. So we need to have an alternate way of collecting additional information that should be complementary to the RCTs that we're doing. And this is where we think that using real-world data, turning it into real-world evidence, can guide decision makers, whether it be um, an individual doctor, uh, a provider system, um, a payer, um, or regulators in helping to increase the corpus of knowledge within evidence-based medicine. And evidence-based medicine doesn't say you have to have the best, best, best gold standard data to support every decision. What, they, what it says is you should use the best available data to make the best decision you can, whether it's at an individual patient level or at a population level. And then you get to the issue of how certain do you need to be to make a good recommendation. Uh, maybe a final question as it relates to the, the benefits of using real-world data and real-world evidence. As it, we asked the question about industry, and actually we spoke about it a little bit more broadly, but now let's say that you are CMS or FDA or CDC, uh, one of these government organizations um, that are representing public health uh, needs and issues. What is, aside from medication safety, which we've spoken about, what are, uh, what's possible with real-world data, real-world evidence, um, as it relates to some of these public health uh, goals that have not been possible before? So there are many questions we'd like to have answers to. You know, we'd like to better understand, can we predict disease outbreaks? Um, um, we'd like to be able to, be able to uh, uh, have better information on um, implanted devices put into people, you know, which ones work better than others, which ones fail faster than others, if they fail at all. And um, um, although we may not have the data today that actually allows us to answer those questions, um, and in particular, let's say on the device side, we don't have universal um, identifiers that says in this data system, this was made by this company, it was made in this run, you know, blah, blah, blah. This, it was this model before it was changed to another model. Um, if we had that kind of data, we could much more rapidly gain confirmatory information about the benefit and, sa and safety profile of, 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 of devices. Um, vaccines, we love to be able to have much better information about the effectiveness of vaccines and what happens when everybody accepts vaccination versus doesn't accept vaccination. What does that do? Uh, 
we don't have good information within our data sets today. We could have that information eventually with a, with a seamless learning healthcare system. Targeting medicines to those who work. So I used to say to people, what would you prefer? You're gonna go into a surgeon who's gonna do surgery on you and you wanna to say to them, hey doc, how many of these surgeries have you redone? He said, oh, I've done thousands of them. Now, that now, is, is that a good enough thing to say that this is a good doctor? Um, or the best choice for you to have the surgery done? Wouldn't you rather say, doctor, of the last 10,000 patients that you've been involved with or have been involved in your medical center, how many patients look just like me, my age, my comorbidities, blah, 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 um, and what procedures did they have on them and what were their outcomes? And can that not inform how I make a decision about whether I want to have this kind of surgery or that kind of surgery or not have surgery? Surely you'd like to have that information. Um, not that that's probative and, and, and should make the decision for you, but it's, it's, worthy, it's worthwhile information that people want to have and, um, and should have access to. Um, it changes the dynamic saying, what, was, what, is, what do we think is the right treatment for me on average across large populations to make it now saying, gee whiz, for you particularly, um, we might want to deviate from the guidelines for the following reason. And, and there's evidence to suggest that that, that makes sense. You know, it reminds me of Stephen Jay Gould's book, Full House, an evolutionary biologist at Harvard who died many years ago. But he spoke, and I don't remember the disease that he had been uh, diagnosed with, but he said that when he went in for his uh, diagnosis and, and counseling, he was given some extremely grim uh, news and effectively said, you know, this is, uh, you're not long for this world. And he said, you know, I had an appreciation through my work of statistical distribution. And so went and, and had all the different papers pulled. And I realized, well, actually, the people who have a very, the people who predominantly wound up with this diagnosis had a very different profile than he did in terms of their age and their, um, you know, uh, other aspects of their health. And he said, I don't think it's necessarily true that I fall into the same category that's driving the average. And so that's really what you're speaking towards is this notion of understanding where you stand in the distribution and not just presuming that whatever the median score is, that that's you. And that's the promise that people are hoping for, for precision medicine or personalized medicine. You know, in some future state, if I actually understood how to analyze your genome and your proteome and your metabolome and whatever other ohm you want to analyze, and I understood the interaction between that and your environment, um, and understood the interaction between that and the manifestations of disease, then I'd be able to better target and design a, a, a therapy for you. And we now know that there is tremendous interaction between not only your genome, but the genome of the bacteria in your gut and the development of immune disorders. So not that we know how to do anything about that right now, 
But if we, if we did know that, and we had an understanding of that, then I could better target better uh, treatment for you. And we hope that by better understanding all of these underlying factors which determine how the body works and how it would react to disease will enable us to not just say, I'm gonna treat diabetes, but you're gonna say, actually diabetes is probably four or five different diseases. It's not, all of them have the syndrome that, you know, your blood sugar is not as well controlled. All of them may have the issue that you get end organ damage that's mediated through um, uh, vascular problems. But how they get there might be different, and they might be different diseases. And, you know, though I can treat them symptomatically by trying to control their glucose, if I want to get to the heart of the problem, I, I might need to be doing something different for patient A versus patient B. So let me ask this as sort of a final question on, on upsides. We know that we live in a country with um, a lot of what are referred to as lifestyle-related diseases. If we have the ability to, to see sort of um, the, the development of disease patterns, is it possible that we'll be able, that I, who today feel healthy and I think I look healthy and I test as healthy, that I would be able to go and say, uh, but what, how do, what should I be expecting 15 years from now? Is there enough data of people who look like me that I can actually see that I have risk that I'm not aware of and that I can perhaps start to mitigate that risk um, in, in a way that, you know, I'm, it's not even clear to me today. So that's a very, very controversial issue right now. And a lot of people are going to commercial entities to get their genome analysis to see if they have markers of risk for this disease or that disease, or do they have the fatal gene for you know Huntington's disease or whatever? Um, we're nowhere near being able to really give people good information. We can give some people very good information. We can give some a lot of people interesting information. Um, and we can give a lot of people information that we have no idea how to interpret. <laughs> okay. So, um, yes, I think I can envision at a time, whether it's 100 years from now or whatever, um, when we fully understand what is the meaning of all of this information, which we don't even know how to analyze well yet, and we can also correlate that information with longitudinal clinical follow-up so that we can match the clinical follow-up to the genomic data that we will have much better ability to predict for you, here are some things you should be worried about and there are some things you should do while you're a young person um, to mitigate potential bad consequences down the line. But that's, that's a ways in the future. Okay, and it seems that actually even today, we do have a lot of insight into what we could be doing to improve our health. It's oh, and there are general rules of thumb. I mean, don't smoke, you know, exercise, don't be overweight, you know. These are good things for everyone. Um, the problem is, is that even if you don't smoke, and even if you're thin, um, uh, and um, you exercise, it's there are a lot of other factors that are going to 
impact what happens to you. Um, and, and so you end up with people like Jim Fix, who was thin and a wonderful runner who had a major heart attack. Mm -hmm. uh, why did that happen? Well, that's because everything doesn't pass through the same pathophysiology. So as we look ahead and, and we think about the benefits to having this data and being able to harness it and being able to interpret it, um, there are challenges. And I've listed a few, and I wanted to ask you, uh, I, I've listed three, and I'm sure there's more than three, but I've listed three, and I wanted to get your sense of what is the thorniest. Uh, and first, we can talk about all of them. But the first I listed was business model, that today uh, data is siloed, and uh, some of it is transacted, some of it is not. Uh, what are the incentives for sharing? If we don't have uh, business models that encourage uh, data liquidity and movement, it seems that that will impede the ability for a learning health system to develop. So that's number one. Number two is usability and acceptance. Now, partially, I think that's a technical question about usability. We know we have care fragmentation. We know that different uh, electronic medical records and such do not necessarily speak with each other. And if we want to start bringing in other sources of data, uh, there's a question of how do you resolve identity? How do you do it in an anonymous way? But even after you address that and, and data harmonization, then the question is how do you trust the data enough for regulatory groups to, uh, to use it for approving new drugs and such? So that's a, the second one is, is sort of that usability and acceptance. And the third is governance. Uh, who owns the data? Who gets to say how it's used? And if there is uncertainty, on that, uh, then maybe it leads to uh, the data not being, uh, having the ability to be used uh, that otherwise people would grant for it. So of those three, where do you think uh, poses the greatest risk in order to move forward in developing a learning health system? So I'm gonna take the first and third and put them together. Mm -hmm. And um, the reason is that, um, Whoever collects the data takes the raw data and then they curate it to a certain extent. And once they curate that data, it now has intellectual property value. And that intellectual property value is true whether you're a commercial entity or you're, you're a government. Um, now, commercial entities want to amortize that and therefore data sharing and whatnot is not necessarily in their best interest. They want to mine the commercial, the monetary value out of the data that they have um, collected and curated. Um, but even then, the who owns the data gets, gets to be an issue. So that um, a lot of governments around the world do not allow commercial entities to access the data that they're collecting, collected by the government because they want to, patients want to protect their privacy. And they don't want people to be discriminated against because of their health history. Um, and those are all incredibly important and valuable issues. But what patients are most concerned about is their data being misused, not being used to better decide who would get better and who would not get better, or how to improve the healthcare system. And most surveys show that when patients are asked if they, if they knew that their data was gonna be used for good purposes, they're more happy to share it. In fact, 
many patients are happy to share data now anyway, um, including their genomic data, um, uh, because they think uh, that those benefits are going to come back to them. Um, and so right now, um, you have both public sector and private sector trying to develop data, uh, data systems and infrastructure that allow, allow us to get to a learning healthcare system. Their motivations are different, their progress is different. Um, and, and what's left out of the equation here has been the patient or the citizen. Um, you know, ultimately I believe that you own your own data. If somebody used, takes your data, you own it. Now, the internet companies now have you read a disclaimer which you've never read that says, you know, by virtue of the fact that you're using my service, uh, I have the right to uh, collect metadata or data about you and I can then sell it and make a fortune. Um, but, and, and somehow people think that medical data is even more sensitive. Um, yes, it's more sensitive on one level, but frankly, I'm more concerned about people getting my financial data than I am getting my medical data. And, you know, my financial data has been hacked a couple of times. You know, the institutions I've worked with have been hacked and now I have identity protection and all of that. But um, I, would, I would think that you need to get the citizens and patients as an active force that says to all of these people who have collected the data, whether it's a government, whether it's a healthcare system, whether it's a payer, whether it's a hospital, saying, I want you to be able to let my data all be collected in some Switzerland, because I want that data to be used along with everybody else's data to better improve healthcare delivery. We're a ways away from that. And so the siloing um, is not a um, insurmountable technical issue we could figure out how to um, link different data sets and do it well um, and put it into a framework that it would be at the, you know, we would have an understanding of the strengths and weaknesses of that data. Um, but we don't, we, there is not the incentives to do that. Groups that think they own the data or own the data um, do not have the incentives to, to share that data. So if there's, you know, if we say that we're a long way away from it, it's because those incentives aren't in place, right? So if a, if a patient today had the ability to, to sort of audit their data and say, here are all the different places that are using it. Uh, this health plan has a copy and this drug company has a copy and these health systems have copies. Um, they might not be able to uh, limit those groups from using it because maybe they had given consent and, and such. And as you said, maybe those groups have, have added some value to it in some way. And so now it's become uh, protected by a form of intellectual property. But if the patient had the ability to say, well, here's all the places that my data is, and I would like uh, it to be also be able to be used at this research center, do you think that that just having that technical capability 
could move the needle or would there need to be sort of some, some policy that goes along with it? That there would need to be policy. So policy is the great issue than the technical problem. Mm -hmm. What data collectors would say, oh, I'm going to have to spend more money and, uh, and more effort to make that data available. Um, as an aside, a few years ago, I changed positions. Um, and I asked my old physician to give me my records so I could give it to my new physician. And uh, he delayed giving me those records for several months and until I forked over $50 for the Xeroxing, you know, to do it. I mean, that, that, that's kind of silly, you know. Um, I think that um, if, it was, if, if it was legally required that whoever it may be and whatever kind of data, whether it's medical data or it's internet search data or it's your Facebook friend data, if they were told you have to uh, be able to export that data, the raw data, to a place where other people can analyze it, it would have a remarkably different effect on what those business models would be. And I don't think that those companies would stop making money. But I, I think, you know, they would have to adapt to a different environment. And um, it would also ensure that whoever is using the data um, is using it in the most rigorous way possible because other people would have the data too and they could do the same analysis. No, that's right. You couldn't just count on you having the head start because you had the most amount of data or what yeah. have you. Let's see. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about the, um, the challenge of usability and acceptance. Uh, now, the usability piece, you know, I was referring to some of the technical challenges, which it sounds like you feel for the most part can be addressed. Maybe uh, I, I mean things like identity resolution or data harmonization. Again, you know, uh, I mean, um, a lot of attention was focused over the last fifteen years around interoperability. Right. You know, common data models. You know, whatnot. Um, yes, those are challenges, and um, but I think that if we actually had the political will. The, techn the technical answers to these are, are not rocket science. They are soluble mm -hmm. and have been solved by a number of different entities who have found a way to do it. So um, whether you're doing a distributed data model like Sentinel, whereby they don't actually ever take the data out of different institutions, but they ask you to put a subset of information into a specific model, and then you query into that model and they can query to all the different institutions and bring that information together one way. That's one way. Or you, or you put everything into a common data model, one being OMOP, um, um, uh, and then everybody has their data in the same data model, which makes it easier to go across. Or um, there are other technical solutions. We can find a way to deal with the interoperability. The issue of identity protection is a more difficult one. Um, there's no such thing as 100% uh, 
guaranteed protection of your data. Um, as I said, uh, um, if the Russians can hack into the Democratic Convention or somebody hacked into Social Security or somebody hacked into Chase Bank, I mean, it can happen. It, it, it's going to happen. The question is, what's a reasonable level of protection so that um, routinely people can't break into your data and it's being used for appropriate purposes? And if your data is broken into, how do you know that and what can you do about it? So um, at the end of the day, once we start getting genomic data merged with clinical data, really sophisticated people could probably go back and figure out who you are. Mm -hmm. And there was a case several years ago where a number of very eminent scientists put their genomes out on the web and some very clever researchers were able to say, I can figure out who those guys are. So there's no 100% guarantee. What you wanna make sure is, it is not being used routinely for purposes that you don't want it used for and you want it being used for purposes that you think are for the public good. And whether that's going to be some sort of blockchain, not that blockchain is at a state where it's the end all and be all, but one can imagine there are other technical solutions that will be, will, will be emerging that will allow you to better know who's touching your data and how it's being used, and you're, and you're giving permission, active permission, as opposed to passive permission, for those uses. Um, some people may want to opt out and be off the grid. Hey, you know, maybe that's okay. But I think most people are going to say, if I know it's being used for purposes that are going to make my life better and I can see tangible reasons why over the next few years, that use of that data is going to make it more likely that I'm going to live a happier, healthy life. Why wouldn't I have that data be used that way? Why not? So then the, the last um, area that I, I presented might pose a challenge is this notion of acceptance, that regulatory organizations and such saying the real world evidence is sufficient for us to start using to make other decisions. I know you've done uh, a lot of work in several of your publications relate to building confidence on how regulatory organizations um, can use real world evidence and part of what you've uh, spoken about is the um, ability to, for people to post the studies that they're planning on doing and making it available in the same way that they do for RCTs uh, today. Is it your sense that this notion of building sort of trust and acceptance by regulatory agencies is, it may take time, it may take effort, but it's not an insurmountable uh, challenge if, if we go down the, the type of path that you've recommended? I don't think it's an insurmountable path and, and registration of studies like we do for study, uh, RCTs is but one step. It doesn't get you all the way there. And I think there is still is methodologic research that needs to be done to let us understand how confident we are about uh, uh, inferences we're making based upon uh, non-randomized data. There were issues there. And then there is issues about there are new analytic approaches, machine learning and artificial intelligence. What do we do about that? Um, ultimately, at some point, um, there, 
going to be a whole host of insights that are going to come out of this, which are going to be found to be reliable. And as people see that they are reliable, and as the data gets better and more complete and cleaner and all of that, or we knew, learn how to deal with the fact that the data is dirty or sparse, um, we'll understand when we can make an inference or not. Uh, as we get to that point, evidence-based medicine is going to run ahead of regulators because you're going to start saying, oh my God, I can learn and I believe this. And it's like a control chart. We see it's going in the right direction. I don't care why it's going in the right direction. It's going in the right direction. I'm going to, I'm going to tailor my, method, my, my, my recommendations more and more as I get more and more information. In the short term, however, we're not going to be there. And the question for, um, and it's a whole host of stakeholders. What is good enough for a physician at the bedside? What is good enough for a healthcare system where you're designing benefit design? What is good enough for treatment guidelines where you're making recommendations for a population? What is good enough for a regulatory agency to say, I'm gonna give market authorization for this indication? And for each of those things, um, there is a different calculus around how much, how much regret you'll have for making a bad decision. And if I'm at a patient's bedside and I have no information about something, but I can do an analysis that might give me some insight into it, it may not be definitive, um, I should factor that into my thinking and the patient should as well. The regret there is around one patient, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm a healthcare system and I'm designing benefits, now I have many more patients I'm going to affect. And I'd like to have greater certainty around that. What's the level of uncertainty I'm willing to accept? If I'm now making treatment guideline recommendations, well, is it being made across broad populations or for specific populations? Um, are we talking about asymptomatic diseases that are gonna have consequences 20 years from now? Or are we talking about rapidly fatal diseases where if I don't do something, someone's going to die in the, in the next six to 12 months? All of those, those things change how you think about what's the strength of the evidence you need to have to make a recommendation. And then regulators, um, they don't want to make mistakes. And I, and I get that. You know, um, it's only... 60 years ago, 60 years or 70 years or so ago, to the thalidomide disaster. And, you know, I think that that said to regulators, we really need to find a way to look for adverse events and we need to have an adverse event monitoring system. And that led to a, a whole host of uh, innovations that, you know, to, to find, find and detect that. Again, medicine, first of all, do no harm. We want to avoid harming patients that are not going to get a benefit. Then the other side is, how can we give more benefit to patients who are not going to uh, experience inordinate risk to get that extra benefit? And I think that um, it will take time um, and experience 
um, for regulators to say, where can I make decisions earlier where I have less regret? So um, I might have less a chance of less regret when, and, and actually regulatory agencies have already, have already done this. They have modified label based upon real world data. And they've done that when there has come up information around alternate dosing schedules. Turns out, you know, um, we see that you don't have to dose it the way it was originally recommended, but you're still getting the same benefit. The, the risk there to the population is less, you know. Um, what if we know a drug works in um, a large population and they've done a randomized controlled clinical trial, but they didn't study a subpopulation, whether it be elderly or patients with chronic kidney disease or whatever it may be. Um, and now you have real-world evidence that looks at the benefit-risk profile in that subpopulation. And it makes sense in the context of the randomized controlled trial done in a different population. Well, I have a greater tendency to believe that information if it's all consistent. Or if they have multiple studies done off of multiple different populations and multiple different data sets by different research groups. I mean, now you're getting to a place where I'm saying, I, 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 I have greater confidence that I believe in that. We don't have that situation today. But as we start asking the system to provide that information, replicate, replicability, looking at different data sets, independent researchers, convergence of the totality of evidence, and they see that the evidence is consistent with what they got in randomized clinical trials, even though they're asking different questions, it makes sense biologically. It's plausible, it makes sense medically. You're going to see them starting to use it more. But to get there, they wanna take baby steps first. They wanna crawl before they walk and they wanna walk before they run. Do I think we're going to get to a place in the distant future where this won't be an issue? I certainly do. And, but that will also change, require changes in public acceptance and, and policy issues. And so that when a new product comes, if a new treatment or a new therapy comes on the market, um, right now, in order to randomize you, I have to get your explicit permission. You have to sign a long document. It may be a point in the future that our, we've changed our social contract. We're saying if you're getting care out of this healthcare system and we want to start using a new therapy, you've, been, you've already agreed that I can randomize you because I'm taking into account, I'm going to really follow you. I can follow you really carefully because even if you don't do anything different, I have real-time information about how you're doing. You know, and if I have real-time information on how you're doing, I have a greater chance of preventing you from having something bad that happens to you. If we get to that point, then studies will be seamlessly being done all the time mm -hmm. within the healthcare system. It's not that the RCT will go away. It's just that it will be part and parcel of a health, learning healthcare system. Before we get there, we're going to have a lot of information, which we're going to find is very useful where there's no randomization. And using um, 
quasi-experimental designs, we can get closer to a randomized study. Not there, but we can get closer to it. And again, if you can do multiple studies off of different populations and different places by different researchers, and all that information converges on saying, this is a good thing to do, you know, I mean, that'll be okay. Right, and you'll have, you'll have a high level of confidence yeah. at that part. I like the idea of the um, evolved randomized clinical trial. So it's still still present. It's sort of like lurking in the algorithms, but not as explicit as, as it, we're seeing it, today. Uh, I've I, I used this analogy, and some people don't like it. It's kind of like the dinosaurs didn't die. They evolved into birds. Mm-hmm. Or a subset of the dinosaurs evolved into birds, and so there are still dinosaurs around, just big birds. Yeah. The RCT will still be around, but it will be seamlessly integrated into the, the mechanism of healthcare delivery. So let me ask you, as uh, we've spoken a few times about FDA Sentinel, and the notion of, um, I think, that program seeming to sort of rapidly gain momentum over the last... Uh, 10 to 12 years. And my understanding is that it really sort of began in, in its mini-sentinel form in the late 2000s, uh, mid to late 2000s. And then it became what I believe they characterized as fully operational only a few years ago, 2016, where there started to become the ability to take data from multiple different sources, I think largely claims-related data, but from a variety of different sources, and do... Um, rapid identification of adverse uh, effects of medical treatment, uh, drugs in particular. And now there's a uh, concept of expansion. I think they published their five-year plan just a month or two ago, and and they want to start bringing in other data sources and integrate real-world data and real-world evidence. So the question is, as, as much of an accomplishment and success as that seems to be, there's also been stories about tech companies like Google or Twitter that are able to mine uh, the search terms that people are using or the postings people are doing and actually find uh, health alerts or, or reach the conclusion that there should be a health alert even before Sentinel can do it. So can a program like Sentinel uh, keep up with what is available in the private sector? Is there a way that, that the government can, can be a leader in this space? So, um, Sentinel has been a, a landmark development. Um, but just because it's been a landmark development, it's been successful in a particular way, doesn't mean that it has the ability to be scaled and used for multiple purposes. As you said, it's mostly based upon claims data. Claims data being when you, when you do something, somebody has to get paid, so there's some sort of record about that. That doesn't get down to the granularity of information that we really want to have to best understand what works for which patients and, 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 and how to best target medicines most effectively. There is a skepticism right now whether data ex- uh, that it comes from other sources whether it be electronic health record data, or it's weather data, or it's Google search term data, or it's uh, 
social media data, lots of potential sources of data, whether that data is complete enough, good enough, strong enough to actually be mined, and can it be combined um, rigorously enough with, uh, with each other and with claims data so that you can do much more interesting and robust analyses. Um, here is where the government is at a handicap compared to the private sector, because the private sector moves at the, at the speed of which um, they can have a reasonable business model. And, and so some of the organizations out in the private sector have been much, much more rapid in terms of their ability to take electronic health record data and turn it into usable fit for purpose uh, analytic files, which then can be used for research purposes and make um, um, uh, conclusions that you might want to use. Um, the government doesn't have the ability to move quite as fast as that. So the challenge is, how do you get the best of the both the public and the private working together? Um, I'm reminded that um, countries outside of the U.S. have been far ahead of the U.S. in terms of collecting data. Um, the U.K. Uh, being one, the Scandinavian countries being others, where they collected large, large amounts of data and uh, on whole populations. But their ability to leverage that data to rapidly analyze it and make uh, inferences off of it to help improve has not made as much progress because of um, a variety of issues driven by stronger safety concerns, who can get access to the data, and how can it be used uh, than in the U.S. In the U.S., same concerns are there uh, with the government, but the private sector has gone ahead and a lot of people are willing to share data. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and um, a lot of organizations have found ways to aggregate large amounts of data that have been made into usable and very useful um, um, sources for real-world data. I don't know how this is going to play out, but I, I think somewhere down the line there has to be a way to find a mechanism to align incentives between the private sector and the public sector so we can get some of the entrepreneurial um, advancement that happens more rapidly in the private sector combined with the um, imprimatur of um, public good that we're, we're getting from the, from the public sector. Yeah, that's interesting. It seems that it's almost necessary for the public sector to figure out what it can contribute that's unique to this um, evolution. And maybe actually doing the work itself and doing the analysis and doing the mining may not be where its you know, core competencies are uh, compared to other, other groups. Maybe it's more in the incentive shaping and in the ability to sort of license use of data um, in some way. It's not like we haven't faced this before. Um, and we faced, faced it in other venues. 
um, other industries. So um, at one time, uh, power companies were private and they weren't regulated. At some point, we decided that this is a public good and they should be regulated. Um, how do you, when, when do you make a decision that the needs of the overall populace require much more enhanced regulation versus allowing there to be innovation that drives uh, you know, progress forward more rapidly? Um, and that's a, there's no, I don't know if there's a magic answer to that, but um, at some point we're going to recognize that all of this information that's being delivered by health care systems that generates information, that that information that they or, or that data, which can be turned into information and be turned into evidence, all of that data is part of a public trust. It's a public good. And therefore, we have to deal with it as a public good. We're not going to get there in a hurry. And there is a risk to getting there too soon. Mm -hmm. um, um, it can stifle innovation if you get there too soon. Um, but um, we're going to struggle with that. And in the meantime, all of this is going to lead to a enormous impact on how healthcare systems are designed, what healthcare providers are doing, um, what are the definitions of different healthcare providers. These are all going to expand. One of the things that, you know, I think is worth thinking about is um, how is this, what has happened in other spheres of life? Used to be, when you needed to file your tax return, you only had, at least in the United States, one option. You had to go to a CPA or learn, the, uh, learn what a CPA does so you correctly filled out your tax return. Uh, fast forward, and now many people do their tax return on TurboTax. It's a self-service process. And for a large number of people, that does it just fine. Now, it's not good for everyone. And you see advertisements on TV saying, ah, yes, but if you're having problems, we can get a live CPA to talk to you. So is there lessons to be learned there for healthcare? Some are very resistant to any idea about that. You know, the medical model where the doctor is the captain of a team and everything has to go through that doctor is great, but we've already seen the rise of telemedicine um, and we've already seen the rise of uh, minute clinics. We've seen the use of uh, uh, care extenders, whether they are nurse practitioners or, uh, or other kinds of uh, 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 healthcare providers, expanded use of pharmacists, uh, yeah. What is that going to look like as we try and deliver more care to more patients and do it more efficiently? And that will all be transformed by this information revolution. And that's going to happen at the same time that we're talking about what's the right way to use it. And that will may to some extent run ahead 
of what we think are the right answers. And there'll be bumps, bumps in the road and mistakes will be made. So as you think, it's actually a, a nice transition. I want to ask you a future-oriented question. Um, the, we had discussed in the past uh, the economist Bill Baumel, and uh, I think nominated several times for the Nobel Prize in economics, unfortunately didn't win, but uh, has been one of his insights was that as you start to have um, prices increase uh, for talent, for human talent in an industry generally, that even uh, disciplines that do not necessarily have gains in productivity wind up still uh, having an increase in their costs. And so the, the old joke is that the, the minute waltz, uh, no matter how much you practice, uh, does, can never be performed adequately in less than 60 seconds. And in, similarly, in medicine, there is a uh, sort of a built-in constraint uh, towards productivity, but yet the price of uh, laborers in this space, whether it be physicians or others, have, have increased over time. Now, you've just pointed out a number of, of, of changes that have been done to try to reduce uh, the total costs of care, such as telemedicine or uh, empowering uh, nurses or nurse practitioners or, or pharmacists to do things that be, before they hadn't in the past. But another area uh, that we've spoken about is, is with a learning system, with machine learning, uh, with the development of artificial intelligence. If you have all this data, then uh, being processed in a way that we foresee that it, that it could be, the role of the physician may change. And the good news for that uh, could be a reduction in cost because there would be an increase in productivity. So you might actually have people getting paid the same or more, uh, but the productivity gains associated with would be higher. If that starts to manifest, how will that change medical education over the next decade? Next decade is hard to talk about. We can talk about the longer term, but we've already seen some glimpses of this. And um, there've been articles published which talk about um, machine learning predictive algorithms being as accurate or more accurate than um, cohorts of physicians in making diagnoses. So one could imagine that um, um, instead of just relying upon the physician to uh, make the formulation and, and ask all the right questions, get the diagnosis, that they have assistance in doing that. And even assistance in deciding what are the treatment options where some, some um, larger artificial intelligence is keeping up with the world's literature and saying, hey, this was just published last week, you should know about this, you know. I, it's never the, it, they're never going to replace the physician or the healthcare provider, but they may augment and change what that person spends their time doing. And um, that's scary to a lot of people. We seem to have hit a productivity limit because of the way we defined how healthcare is delivered. And what, you, and what dollops of delivery can occur. Just because we've done that, way, done that for the last 150 years doesn't mean that that's the way it's always going to be. Now, I don't know when we're going to get anthropomorphic robots 
and all that kind of stuff. But it's not hard for me to imagine that sometime over the next several decades that someone might be able to go in to a kiosk or onto uh, a website and get prompted to provide a bunch of different information and they might be able to get very accurate advice about what they should be doing. Um, are we going to say, no, you can't do that? Um, well, um, yes, there will be some forces that will say, no, you can't do that. <laughs> but um, um, the fact is, if it becomes widely available and people find it to be useful and effective, people are going to use it anyway. So I have to imagine it's going to change. And the physician needs to be able to uh, understand comprehensively at some level of depth mechanisms of disease and different treatment options, but they can't be possibly expected to keep up with all of the nuances, particularly when they don't understand what, you know, this new HLA blah, 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 you know, does in relation to your, you know, um, gut, gut flora bacteria, uh, uh, um, you know, and how that interacts. No one's going to be able to keep up with all that information. So, um, they're going to be. They're going to have to be. You're going to have a new generation of physicians who are going to be um, data scientists as well as physicians, and they should be spending their time developing a trust relationship with patient to find out what patient preferences are, so that the treatments are related to the patient preferences, and um, they can immediately go beyond their what's they got between their ears to look at what are the what's the information set they should be considering, which has already changed today from what it was six weeks ago because we now have this insight. So I can see that day coming. It's probably 100 years in the future or more, but, um, but we're gonna start seeing early indications of that in little pockets. You're gonna see that everywhere in different places over the next 10 years. This is, um, in some ways, the IBM Watson you know, promise. A colleague of mine was a uh, fighter pilot during the first Gulf War, and we were having a conversation a couple of weeks ago, and he was explaining to me the, uh, the different mathematics that they would use in order to uh, calculate their bombing runs and such. And I said, uh, so you know, how, how quickly could you do that? He said, oh, you know, you got really good doing it in your head. And I said, so that's true today, too? He said, oh, no, are you crazy? It's all done by flight navigators and computers and, and, and such, right? He said, we don't, it used to be that the, that the number of people that you needed in a plane was much greater than it is today. And, of course, now you have planes that are completely uh, without any people at all. So, um, but I think that it's an interesting analog as you think about sort of an assistant, sort of an AI assistant or machine learning assistant. And during the transition, you're going to find out that humans are going to still be very important. And so I remember the um, movie Hidden Figures, mm -hmm. which in which um, the calculations for um, inserting into lunar orbit um, may have been done initially by the computers that were available at the time, but they also had it done by their best computers who were women who actually, they said, 
if I don't, if it's not done by her, I'm not going to trust it. So there's going to be a time that we have to take where before people are going to trust that all by itself. It's not going to be, I'm going to trust it today. I want it verified. And over time, I will gain comfort that actually you can replace computation with, with, with computers. Right, because you'll have the history at you'll that point. I, I have an exit question, uh, Mark, closing question. I'd like for you uh, to evaluate for me on a scale from zero to 10, with 10 being metaphysical certitude and zero being hopelessly uncertain, your confidence that we will start to see the learning health system manifest itself within the next five years. So I reject that it hasn't been manifesting already. And so I think we've already started to see manifestations of a learning healthcare system. Um, our ability now to rapidly analyze data and turn around answers to good questions in hours to days to, to, to weeks is remarkably different than it was even five years ago or 10 years ago. So our ability to do that has, is, has gotten there. The number of individuals who have the expertise to be able to analyze this data is growing, although that's a, a big barrier in the short term is getting many more people conversant with how to analyze data. The experiments that are being done in many different places to look at how technology can augment human healthcare delivery is happening. So we're gonna see lots of case studies over the next several years. If your question is, when are we gonna reach the tipping point where it moves away from case studies, people saying systematically, this is the right way to go, let's move the healthcare system there, we're not gonna be there within 10 years. Will we be there within 25? I think likely. Um, will we be there within 100? Absolutely. Assuming that set of us, power of us, that we don't blow ourselves up and, and, and liberal democracy continues to reign as a predominant political economy. Right. Um, but, 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 you know, with all that being said, we, we, could, we will be there. We will have the ability to do that. And, you know, when I was born, there was no computers and there was no man on the moon and there was no internet. I mean, the changes that we're going to see in the next 50 years um, probably exceeds my imagination. I would like to thank Dr. Mark Berger for this wide ranging and stimulating conversation. Thank you, Mark. Thank you.